0: Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Growth. Today, we're going to discuss teaching our children about climate change. Global warming is now a fact of life. The planet is warmer, ice caps melting, sea levels rising, weather disasters, these, these constant storms, droughts, floods, fires, all of these are now happening at a rate five times the US 30 year average and they're going to increase. The environment and weather patterns have changed And today's children will be the first generation to grow up entirely in a post-climate change world. Now, don't get me wrong, we have to continue to fight greenhouse gas emissions to slow global warming and prevent this crisis from getting worse. We've already made the planet uncomfortable, but we don't have to make it unlivable. We do have to prepare our children to live in a world of temperature extremes, life-threatening storms and collapsing food systems. We need to teach our children how to create the next generation of built environments. That's homes, offices, factories that can withstand the new temperature and weather extremes. And we need to teach our children to create new food systems that can survive in a world of constant flooding and drought. So how do we teach our children about climate change, both as parents and in our public and private schools? We're joined today on Zoom by Beth Sarver, board president and vision keeper with the Kansas City Restoration School. Hi, Beth.
1: Hello.
2: Happy to be here.
0: Brianna Paxton, physical science teacher with the Kansas City International Academy. Hi, Brianna.
2: Hi, Bob. Nice to be here.
0: Katie White, educational consultant. Hi, Katie.
3: Hi, Bob. Good to be here today.
0: And Stacey Adams, special education teacher with the Kansas Virtual Academy and founder of the One Thing Movement. Hi, Stacy.
4: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: I'd like to start by hearing a little bit more about your backgrounds, what led you to become a teacher, what ages and subjects you've taught. Katie, do you want to start?
3: Sure. Um, I honestly, it's Kind of silly, but I took a, a aptitude test my junior year of high school way back in the day, and uh, it said be a farmer or an educator. So I already knew I liked farming, but I had bad allergies, so I went in education, and uh, I really do enjoy it, and it was a great fit for me. So um, it's been it's been fantastic. I knew that my rewards would be more. Uh, you know in a relationship wards with kids and watching them grow and not so much the monetary part of it which was fine with me as well and I've really enjoyed all of my students I feel like I've learned more from them than I have uh, any other any other educational thing I've ha- you know experiences that I've had um, I felt like as a somewhat struggling learner in some subjects the hands-on things were awesome for me so I'm I'm that person that likes to do a lot of hands-on uh, educating for everyone.
0: You primarily public school, private combination. What ages did you teach?
3: Well, technically, I homeschooled my kids <laughs> for a while. Then they begged to go to public school, so they went. Uh, I taught in the public schools. Uh, my entire teaching uh, has all been in the public schools. And then later on, um, after I got my master's degree, I worked with a program that worked with uh, science and math teachers in more uh, low-income rural areas uh, from all over the state of Missouri to um, to help them uh, become better teachers as far as the content was concerned and connecting ideas between the different subjects So um, and mostly focused on hands-on science, but then pulled in all this math so suddenly the kids were doing math and, oh, look, you're doing math, <laughs> and nobody was mad about it. math math
0: and science really important today yeah Yeah. brianna um what led you to become a teacher Um,
2: yeah so in my last year of college at ku i was a supplemental instruction leader for biology so i helped small groups of students after class with assignments and i was also a um, tutor for the trio program which helped with like kids with disabilities or first um, generation students low um, minorities and so we got free tutoring. I was a part of that program, but also tutored for them. And so um, what led me to teach was, well, I like doing that. But then uh, Teach for America kind of came, came along. And I was like, that sounds like a great opportunity. And so I just finished up my second year of Teach for America here at Kansas City International Academy. And this is now my third year teaching uh, physical science.
0: So physical science, what ages do you teach? Uh, seventh grade, so they're 12, 13. Very good. Stacy, how about you?
4: Um, I actually started as an art major. Um, I have degrees in both art and education, and it was toward the end of my education sequence in art that, you know, you have to take that class where we're introduced to students with varied needs. I fell in love with the idea of how visual arts and music and other things that we do can tie into learning and, you know, supplement a very non-traditional approach to learning. So um, that's why now I'm kind of art and special education. Um, Over the years, I've taught both, um, sometimes both at the same time, kind of depended. Um, I've kind of really definitely fallen into the area of therapeutic art, as a way to address um, different and varied disabilities and working with kids with special needs. So um, along with that has come multiple grade levels. And so I've been doing this now for about 18 years and absolutely love it.
0: Primarily uh, public or private sector?
4: Um, It's been a little bit of both. I lived in Denver for four years and taught in a private school. Um, Besides that though, um, my experience in Missouri and Kansas is in public education.
0: Very good, Beth. Tell us about your your background. I mean, what brought you to teaching? And
1: well, I I mean, I identify as being a lifelong teacher. Um, as a child, I played school uh, and made my siblings and cousins do homework uh, early on. So I feel like I've been teaching my whole life um, and learning more from my students than they probably taught me um but when i was at ku studying um art education i realized that um teaching in a non-traditional setting was much more um in alignment with my my goals so i was teaching in juvenile detention centers foster care group homes um with the kansas state school for the blind i worked for an organization called accessible arts so Stacy and I have a lot in common in that seeing the the value of arts integration for learning core concepts in science and math and that, but also the therapeutic side of, of creativity and um, process-based learning. Um, so that work took me um, into working with a lot of folks with trauma and um, all throughout the lifespan. And so then I began teaching adults in trauma-informed care um, at Truman Medical Center in Kansas City. And I was hired not because I was a therapist or a clinician, but because I was an experiential learning, arts-based learning professional. Um, And my work at the Kansas State School for the Blind really helped me to develop a sense of being a an adaptive strategist for learning. So really using sculpture and performance and music therapy and any anything, any fine art method to teach ideas. Um, and so understanding trauma, how it affects the brain, how it affects systems um, really transformed my work. And when I began collaborating with the resilient activist, all of those pieces kind of started to come together. So I am um, really focused now on teaching outside of the box of public education or even modern education. Uh, our school is completely out of the box <laughs> and um, is focused on, you know, really meeting the moment that we're in as far as climate change is concerned and, and systems collapse. And I teach all ages from, from birth to death throughout the whole lifespan. I'm a big believer in intergenerational learning that um, learning is a lifelong natural process and that we need to reclaim some of our ancient methods of, of learning and teaching with the land and from the land and from our hearts and minds and spirits all connected.
0: So it's wonderful. Sounds like we've got an, an incredible breadth of teaching experience in different environments. So I, I think that's really great. Thank you for joining us today. So let's start with the, the big question, the why. Why do we think we need to teach children about climate change? Stacey?
4: Sure, I'll, I'll take a swing at it. Um, I think it is so important because it's happening and it's around us and it's on the news. and And more and more, we are seeing the climate change and we're seeing weather patterns and things and um, whether we discuss it or not, our kids are very aware of it. And we cannot take for granted the fact that they, their ears are open and their eyes are open and they're seeing what's going on and they have questions. Um, Traditional in that traditional school setting though, I think we're still hesitant to address the questions they have and to bring what's happening outside the classroom into the classroom for conversation. Um, So I feel like more than ever, it is so important that we start having those conversations with them. I know for my own daughter, my youngest daughter, um, the climate became very important to her at a very young age. We did live out in Colorado and, you know, driving into the mountains, she saw that there were areas of trees that were dying and that there were areas that were being deforested and that they were mining and different things happening. And she had so many questions about that and you know, how that affected her and how it affected where we lived. And I realized you know, if she had those questions without me getting her to have those questions that my students also have those questions. So um, with that in mind, I've been kind of building from that perspective of how can we incorporate what we're doing in the classroom more than ever to what's happening outside so that we can bring that together for our students.
0: Thank you, Stacy. Brianna, why do you think we need to teach climate change to our young people?
2: Um, I think kind of like what Stacy said, like bringing awareness to the thoughts that children's children are already having, because they are going to be those change makers in the world. They're going to be our next generation, um, the people are putting in the new policies and stuff like that. So they've got to be ready to, you know, make some leeway. Um, And, you know, get people to make more sustainable habits and conscious decisions about the choices they're making, um, not only at school, but for their life um, and for their, their future kids, too.
0: Beth, comments on why we need to teach kids about climate change?
1: I think that we owe it to them to prepare them for the uncertainty of the future that they are you know, coming into, um, which is emerging tomorrow. I mean, yesterday, the announcement about the amount of drought that's in this country was, you know, shocking to me, like almost 60% of the lower 48. Um, and so I think we owe it to them to not pretend that, the future is certain and and to prepare them not just with scientific data, because I think that's honestly not what is of greatest uh, importance, but to prepare their mind, body, spirit to sit with the grief and the anger at the elders. So at the Kansas City Restoration School, we really focus on how do we prepare the elders of the future? both by thinking about the children, but becoming those elders now. So this isn't just about the children being taught about climate change. It's about the adults recognizing that we have to become the elders that we were not prepared to become. I was not prepared to have land wisdom. I was not prepared to be able to prepare myself and my family for for the food insecurities that are predictable a year from now. So we owe it to them to prepare their mind, body, spirit, and to help them prepare skillfully to be able to solve problems that they can't even imagine.
0: Thank you. Katie, why do you think it's important that today, especially, we start teaching our children about climate change?
3: Well, I'm just going to pick up kind of where Beth left off uh, when she said the word skillfully, because uh, I think as educators, teachers, and I'm... You know, I mean, I I have teacher training as do all the people on this call or the Zoom, but I feel like uh, everybody in the world, as Beth had said, also is an educator. And what are we educating? We're trying to give people skills they need to have, a, you know, a, a lifestyle that they can enjoy. And so while... Some of the things that we, that our generation, my generation, and other generations have made mistakes in, and I could go back over many years, I mean, smoking cigarettes, you know, <laughs> not good. Throwing trash out anywhere you want, not good. We have changed all of those things. Um, I remember growing up, this, the amount of smog in California was so bad, you know, how many of those, you know, Bad air days do they have like they did before? I mean, it was horrible. We have been able to make some changes and make better choices. So I feel like um, what Beth said, just helping these people, these young people get this skill set for, um, for things that we don't even know what, what might be coming. I mean because we haven't experienced the climate that's showing up as you know as soon as tomorrow. We don't we have not but we do have some ideas on some things that we could help mitigate and, you know, put those skills in our kids uh, toolbox that they'll be able to mitigate these changes. And, you know, they're, that's our future. They think outside the box already. So just encourage what they're thinking. Um, I also feel like knowledge is power. So if we can teach kids about climate change And not just that it's this horrible, terrible thing that's happening, but climate changes. And honestly, it's been doing that for years, but yes, uh, we have a whole science thing that, uh, you know, science strand about human impact on the environment. And that's where those skills and those choices come in. Can we make better choices? Can we help our students understand how to evaluate something to make a better choice? for their future, for our future, for their kids' future. So I feel like it's super important to talk about climate change. And I don't know if we can, if we have to use the word climate change anymore, we have to, you know, switch that up to something that's maybe, um, because that's gotten such a negative connotation and it's such a hot button right now, but maybe come up with something that's, you know, like future thinking or, you know, our future environment, you know, we're going to prepare you for the future environment and, uh, and try to give them those skills. And I, I feel like that's our most important thing about uh, teaching about climate change.
0: It kind of touches on the uh, the political obstacles to teaching um, topics like this in public schools or even private schools where there may be different political groups that agree with it or disagree with it. And the words can become rallying points, you know, things we want to fight over. So whether it's climate change or global warming or whatever the latest iteration is, that we just need to recognize that the climate is changing, the environment's changing, weather patterns are changing, and they're threatening people, they're threatening lives, they're threatening um, property infrastructure. And we need to work together to do that. It doesn't matter what you call it, it doesn't matter whether you believe it's man-made or not. I think we can all recognize it's real and it's hurting people, and we all need to work together to figure out how we survive this. I think teaching young children is a, is a key element to that. I mean, as I said earlier, I think this will be the first generation that grows up totally in this environment where the weather patterns and, and everything is so different. And I think teaching young children especially is, is a very unique skill set. And let me take a moment right now to just thank all of you for dedicating your lives to this important profession. I know that's hard. So what are the unique challenges in preparing young people to live with climate change? Brianna?
2: Yeah, I think some unique challenges that might come along with teaching children about climate change is well, one, trying to inspire hope instead of fear, giving them that passion to make the change instead of just bombarding them with all the bad things that are going on, um, and you know, making them realize that you know we need to be positive about this and think in many different ways because you know, we can't just blame it on past generations. Um, We've all kind of contributed. And so I think, you know, also another thing is like, you got to think of the trauma that students are coming from. Like, I know in my school, I teach um, a lot of inner city students and uh, refugees. And so we speak like 15 different languages. And those students come to me with already a lot of other trauma. So it can be a hard balance for me finding like, okay, what do I say without you know, and inciting more fear or trauma in them.
0: Stacey, what are your thoughts on unique challenges with young people?
4: Yeah, um, I think that that thread is there in our conversation. I mean, I think that as human animals, you know, we talk a lot about how we instinctively um, identify with a tribe you know, that's, that's how we've survived. That's what evolution has taught us to align with a group of people. And I think more so now than ever, what we have are lots of different groups of people trying to mesh together, or feeling threatened, you know, so the, everything has become very polarized. So like, you know, even a diversified students within one building you know they're trying to fight to find their place where they fit in and what is their tribe and are we part of the larger group so when you add that layer of social emotional learning for our kids there's so much going on for them that um, the climate crisis and the things that we're hearing out outside of schools is just another issue to be an us against them or us for them issue. So we need to bring it to a point. I think you know, like Bob, you mentioned it, Brianna, you mentioned it also. It has to quit being something that's, that's an issue that's for us or them. It's just something that's an issue for all of us. It's another system that needs to be balanced. It's not it's not one thing or the other, you know, we, we're we good at teaching systems in schools, we teach the human system, we teach scientific and mathematics systems, social emotional systems, but we need to treat the climate as a system that we can all be part of no matter what the tribe to bring it back into balance.
0: You've mentioned immigration and so much of what's happening in, in the environment is forcing those, those mass migrations, you know, people that are experiencing systemic drought, food failure that have to migrate drought, have to migrate to some other part of the world and how do we integrate them and educate their children coming from? Uh, Beth, you, you've, you've spoken about the trauma and the fear, you know, weather disasters and this uncertain future is obviously scary. You know, many of us both young and old are suffering emotional trauma and despair. Uh, How do we address that, especially when we're trying to teach young children about climate change? How do we address that in a way that is positive and gives them um, hope for a good future?
1: Well, I'm a student of hope. Um, I'm at KU and maybe Brianna, you know, about the hope theory work um, that happened at KU under Schneider was his last name. Um, But... So I think that building hope around climate change doesn't have to be about climate change. It can be about building hope as a human being. Um, because you know, if you, if you if we want to have the internal and external resources to be hopeful beings with awareness about climate change, we, we have to build that um, scaffolding of hope. Around the reality of climate change, because it's it's embedded in our lives. I don't think that um, it's possible to focus on, um, you know, a hopeful outlook on climate based in science with young children um, or even adolescents who aren't incredibly ready for that. I think that we need to focus on building the mind-body connection. We at our school focus very, very much on mind-body awareness and how to be in your body um, because people who are hopeful know how to regulate their nervous system, know how to surf the emotions that come with the crazy things that happen in their lives. And then as we, as we grow, um, as we work with children, we need to be responsively, responsively helping them to build the skills of of hopefulness because it's a skill set to be hopeful. It's not just like a state of being. It's a way of navigating difficulty and having capacity to manage um, a situation. So, I think that the challenge that I'm hearing that we haven't maybe touched on yet, we've kind of maybe a little bit is the intersectional um, complex systems approach because it's not just the system of climate. It's, it's all of our human systems. We have many systems that are collapsing right now. Um, It's not just, you know, the, the climate, you know, the weather systems or the we have economic systems collapsing and we have things happening all around us. Um, And so I think teaching children to be able to hold complexity Um, instead of operating in silos. So we at our school, we focus on living math and that math and science and literature and interpersonal relationships, and it's all intersecting. And so how do you teach children to be present to complexity?
0: You're listening to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Stacey Adams, Katie White, Brianna Paxton and Beth Sarver about teaching our children climate change. So let's talk about today's climate, or just today's educational systems in general. Um, tell me a little bit about the school you're working with and how it's currently addressing climate education. Stacy, you're with the virtual Kansas Virtual Academy. I mean, what's their current take on climate issues?
4: Um, it as with I think most state operated schools, we are within the government system of standard-based education at this time. So everything that we do in our in our core areas of learning go back to meeting those standards. So is the environment brought up during that period of learning? Absolutely. But it's one of an umbrella of standards for everything that we learn. So right now, I feel honestly that that topic gets as much attention as Every other topic. It's very balanced, is the time that's allotted for each thing. So, in an area like the environment where there, you know, as we said, are so many systems and so many areas of learning that needs to happen, we're certainly just Like barely hitting the tip of the iceberg, Um, I think fortunately, you know, we get into the um, upper grade levels where classes are more tailored to specific topics. For those kids who choose those classes, they are getting more in-depth instruction. Absolutely, Um, but uh, you know, at that elementary level in general, where we're trying to, you know, really work on the core um, learning modules, what's happening I think is it's not coming up as much probably as it needs to.
0: Katie, I know you're not with a school system right now, but as a consultant, what are you seeing out there? I mean, are we addressing climate issues the way we need to?
3: I feel like um, the science standards that are in place for the nation do have that, you know, human impact on the environment piece, and that does that does uh, constitute quite a big portion of the upper grades. As Stacy mentioned, the lower grades not so much, but I uh, I do feel like. Um, you know, more could be done at those lower grades. Uh, One of the things that I've worked on mostly as a consultant is uh, the, the composting aspect of thing, you know, the decomposition cycle. And so that can be taught at any grade. I mean, we teach them about the producers and then you got your first level consumers and your second level consumers. And then what happens when you get to that top consumer? nobody knows. Right. So (laughs) they pass away and there's this whole secondary cycle. That's part of, you know, what happens to that? It decomposes. How does that get decomposed? It's not magic. It doesn't wash away suddenly, you know, and the rain comes. And um, so we had taught more about that with the, with the littles, we do like earthworms and things and, and actually had a terrarium where you would put things down in the soil and watch it, decompose right then and there and, and, uh, see what things do decompose and what do not. And it's just super interesting things that we're not really going into deep depth about, but you know, why would we be putting that food in the trash? Um, we've even put pieces of clothing in there, you know, and all different kinds of things, uh, answered the question for those younger ones, why you can't put your gift wrapping in the recycle bin. By putting in in that little decomposition bin, I mean it was. it didn't just didn't decompose. It didn't break down like the other things. You could see that it was very different than the other papers that we put in. So um, those kinds of hands-on things, I think we could be doing. I know that a lot of the younger grades do the you know seed germination, and then the soil that they use. It you know it's there's that's something I feel very strongly about as well. Is that the soil health? is a very important thing that could solve a lot of our climate problems or mitigate them. Um, And giving, again, giving students those skills, that knowledge of how to use what they've learned in the classroom and how does that adapt out into their life. Um, I also wanted to speak a little bit to the challenges. And one of the challenges that I feel like a lot of people and even as adults, like anybody, is that you make a choice about something and then you feel like you made a bad choice or you've done something, you know, that you felt like it was a green thing, but then you felt like it wasn't enough. And this kind of goes to Stacy's one thing movement, which I I think I really like that. Um, But just, if you just do the one thing, you don't have to completely change your household over to this, you know, um, eco-friendly household, but you could do one thing you know, and that would be a big help if everybody just did the one thing. And so accepting, uh, helping students see that they can accept what other people are doing differently, you know, and if that's a good fit for them, maybe they could start doing that. And, um, And just, again, those listening skills, these are all pieces that we need to put into place to really help our students learn basically anything, but especially when we're talking about something like climate change, that does have such a huge impact, and it's such a hot button topic. To be able to listen to somebody, hear what they say, and that includes listening to our students and hearing what they're saying. And that goes back to question one: what What are you worried about, and why is that worrisome to you, and what, what do you feel like we could do about that? And then, you know, those kinds of discussions with students and and just really hearing each other and and giving validity to things, or maybe it's something we need to explore or do some kind of a trial error experiment on. I mean, just so many things that could come from that to really help students. But um, as far as in the schools, I, I do feel like we are doing things, but again, educating the educators, that helps a lot. And educating the homes is like part two because Yes, the students spend a lot of time at school, but ultimately their biggest hero is their parents and their family. And I, I can tell you, I could teach kids things all day long and then they go home and, and their mom and dad said, this is a better way to do it. And they're going to believe them regardless. And, I, and I'm not finding fault with that. I just want parents to know that they are empowered with that kind of a power over anything else with their students and their kids. So I feel the schools are doing a pretty good job.
0: Brianna, tell us about um, Kansas City International Academy and any climate environmental programs they have in place.
2: Yeah, so, well, I teach physical science. So a lot of the work that I do is through energy and like chemical reactions throughout the year. And they get most of their like climate change um, education in sixth grade where they do um, earth and space science. But in this in summer school I get to do a climate change engineering internship and we use like a roof um, modification sim and it's based in like Arizona. And so they're looking at like, the types of roofs they have, like would it be better if they had white painted roofs or solar roofs based on like, is it flat or is it pitched? And the sim like allows them to see what the emissions and CO2, like how they change based on what they change. So it kind of, it's not very hands-on but it gives them an opportunity to see like if we were to make these simple changes such as painting our roofs white or installing a few solar panels, what that could do. Um, For our
0: community. So some very direct, um, you know, not hands-on, but, you know, some very direct measurables that they can walk away with.
2: I know our elementary school does a lot with, like, working in the garden throughout the year and, like, sharing that produce with everyone, and they talk about climate
0: change. Beth, Kansas City Restoration School, I know you were doing a garden for a while with all of those various components in it.
1: Yeah, we teach um, environmental action civics. Um, we're a part of the Earth Force Sustainability Initiative. And so we have we built a garden at Unity Temple, and that included a vertical garden, rain barrel, um, and a vermicomposting system. And we really were creating closed loop or attempting to create closed loop water and food systems in our school. Um, We've recently moved out of Unity Temple and become a traveling school, which has been very exciting. So my homestead and the homestead of one of our other board members are kind of the two um, garden bases that we are operating out of. And my permaculture garden is much more farther along. And I have a variety of composting systems and um, and ever expanding my little food forest. So my garden is one of the places that we orbit. And then the other land that we are on is yet to be developed as an acre and a quarter. And so we've walked the land. We are focused on land stewardship, um, watershed, and really identifying everywhere we go, how the water will run, um, how it will flow, how it will move on the land. Um, just today we were at a playground and we could see the erosion um, where water from most recent rain had washed you know, the topsoil into the um, sidewalks. So we we take an approach where we have explicit instruction in permaculture principles, uh, cover crops. I'm constantly building soil on my land. So, you know, the children all know why we shouldn't be sending our leaves away from our homes. And also that we need to rake the leaves out of the streets and why that is, and that we need to be um, mindful of the life of the land and the trees and the creatures. So we we very much um, believe that we need to yield to indigenous land wisdom, and we need to really um, reclaim some of the ancient practices and, and wisdom about being in right relationship with the land. So we talk about the land every day, um, and the children have an opportunity to be Um, working the land or doing something in relationship to the land constantly. Like that's like a a nonstop.
0: (laughs) uh, What's what's, What's the age range of the children in your school?
1: Currently we are six to 10. My son actually just went back to public high school. And I will say, I am happy to hear that he does have an environmental science class that he can access um in the in the coming future um so so yeah but at our school right now we've shrunk um a little bit to make this traveling shift this last summer we focused on really rewriting our bylaws and the story of our school to be an earth-centered school um with the core um purpose of preparing the elders of tomorrow for the future
0: that is so uncertain so so I, I'd heard about your work on the garden at unity. Um, yeah. I also believe that you'd done some um, some fashion. I mean, the whole fast fashion impact. Didn't you do some sort of a fashion project? Yeah, we
1: yes, we did a project with uh, an fashion designer from Chile who travels all over the world teaching people about fast fashion and how um, just terrible it is and how there's a better way through upcycling and mindful um you know consuming of fashion and products being mindful of where you purchase your your fashion from but also just not shipping it away um so yeah we had a wonderful uh mini fellowship with fran from chile and we hope to have her back actually she was it was great to have her with us
0: Uh, I think it's wonderful. I mean, you're a good example of the school integrating these earth concepts and just making it a core part of your curriculum, a core part of your daily interaction with your students.
1: Yeah, we believe that math and science and literature and all the things are embedded in um, being in right relationship with the earth. And so that's our approach is to focus on being in right relationship and trust that the skill building associated with that will come along um, as a secondary focus. It's
0: interesting to not contrast, but compare, I mean, what you're doing that is very hands on, you know, learning by doing and Brianna, you're talking about the math and science, how you're showing the impacts through these various demonstrations you do. And I think both of those are important. So what does the future of climate education look like? I mean, we've kind of been talking about what schools are doing now. Where do we go in the future? I mean, what is the vision for our our systems, our school systems in the future to address these climate changes? Katie, you want to start on that?
3: I really feel like people just, you know, the, the educators need to be more aware of, you know, the impacts and have more leeway with what they're teaching um, I really agree with the, the land idea of just like, if you just use the fact that we need to be better earth stewards and then we study something and then we ask, well, how does that relate to, you know, our environment today and how does that affect choices that you would make even in chemistry and especially in physical science, you know, how does that affect a choice you would make about something everything that you do can be related back to some kind of a relationship with the earth. Exactly what we were talking about before. Uh, I I really feel like the hands-on thing is super important. I worry a lot about virtual everything. Although sometimes, I mean there a virtual has been good and it's a tool, but it shouldn't be the end all. So um, the fact that students aren't getting out of microscope anymore or looking at slides you know, it's like blows my mind. I mean, so we have some technology things that are better that we can use, but we should still be seeing the planaria. Do you know what a planaria looks like? You know, have you seen a single celled amoeba eat something? Because that's very different than the way humans eat something and not in a movie, but like actually happening, you know, those kinds of things from the tiniest up to the largest Uh, a lot more hands on, I feel like. And, and just in, a great example of that is you know, and anybody who's worked with kids in a trauma and have been affected or even adults have been affected by trauma, you know, whatever it is that's going on, and then you hand them a baby chick to hold, and then does that change them instantly to somebody else?
0: Yeah, Stacey, you're working in a virtual environment. How, how do you respond to that?
4: Oh, no, I agree with that 100%. Um, I know that everybody kind of went virtual. During the pandemic, it was something we had to do and we launched into a system that really wasn't well developed for the majority of our students. Um, there are virtual schools that have been around for a long time. You know, they were kind of on the fringes and now they're way more mainstream than they've ever been before. Um, our school, for example, is, is huge. We have over a thousand students and a very, very long waiting list. Um, because I think what we found were the students who, Um, maybe had always had difficulty in the public school or who were medically fragile, had specific disabilities. When they had to make that transition, um, families um, learned that they were much more successful and safer. And I mean, I, I, learning for me is definitely a spectrum. If you think about special education, my job is to see each student as an individual on that spectrum you know, target how they learn and how they understand and then teach to them as individual people, not an entire classroom. Well, on a larger scale, I think you have that group of students that thrives virtually, um, you know, for whatever reasons, whether it's past trauma, behavioral concerns, health concerns, um, that is a large part of our population, students that have something diverse in their lives, so that it's a fit. But that definitely doesn't apply to every kiddo. I would definitely not push everybody my direction. I've just found that the, a lot of the students I've always serviced fit well into that system. So that's after teaching, I didn't plan on staying online. You know, I was couldn't wait to get back. But um, now that I've been there and I have that relationship, I know that I'm meeting the needs of the students that are where they need to be right now. But yes, we are missing a big piece of learning. And we talk about this all the time. How do we create something using technology that would have been a hands-on experience? Um, Something as simple, like, okay, totally off topic, but um, my students this week, you know, the change of the season, students have always made the artwork and decorated their classroom we don't have that virtually. So we created, you know, a big project this week. So the kids could decorate their virtual classroom that's missing for all the kids. They want to be part of something they want to connect and they want to work on things together. So, that's, that's
3: something that needs a lot of work to make that system better.
0: Katie.
3: I know I said virtual and I, I really believe um, that parts of school can be virtual and that virtual learning could also include hands-on learning. And I've seen it be very successful. And I'm going to give a not school example. But um, when it was when it was during the shutdown and we had um, Christmas Eve, because that's coming up, so it sticks in my mind. And the church has continued to do this. They sent home packets or they had someone come around and drop off packets so that we all had our... Um, all of our pieces, we had our candles to light for the candlelight service. And it just came in this little Ziploc bag, everything you needed. Um, also, one of my friends, uh, she's an artist, and she was she would go do these classes. So you'd hire her to come and do like a paint pour class or, you know, build a certain little cuddly friend, you know, class. And she'd bring everything and everybody would get their little pieces and they'd do it. And then COVID hit and she's just like, poof, there goes my whole income. Well, she started doing the same thing. So she would have, you know, you want to do this. So the people would join on a Zoom meeting like this. And she had already mailed out all their little boxes of things that they needed to do. And they could do their hands on right there at their house, but together online. And then they could show where they were and where they got stuck and have discussions as though it was in person, even though you don't have that same like vibration as if you're all in one room together, but they were doing the hands-on things. And uh, I I can see that happening with a school mix. And Stacey, maybe you could add in if there's anything you guys do that's similar to that.
4: Um, Yeah, especially in the upper grades where, because they're not online with us all day long. There are assignments and curriculum and experiments that are things that are happening then it's supported with live learning. So yeah, when those things are done that are offline, they're brought back into the classes or worked on together in smaller groups and breakout rooms or whatever. Um, Over the holidays, I always have a week of like Christmas holiday themed crafts So, you know, send out the list of here's what you'll need and then they can come join me and then we try to do those things, you know, together online as well trying to bring that sense of community Um, as much as it is is that hands on learning. There has to be that sense of community, which is, you know, uh, we're always working on, which like circles all the way back around to if we could create a stronger sense of community, I think we could take away the, that climate fear and some of those things that are going on with our kids and better educate them in that area.
0: Stacey, I know you're working with the Climate Council to produce a series of educational climate videos, One Thing for Kids and lesson plans and all that. Tell us a little bit about that, how that kind of fits into this virtual hands-on environment we're talking about.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think because we are, you know, once kids leave the classroom, they are apart, but need this extra support and education. Um, I'm kind of working on building some of those materials that can be used in the classroom or can definitely be used outside the classroom, Um, but, you know, things... A lot of teachers now. We've kind of moved away from that standard textbook. I know, Brianna, you can speak to that. And it's more about us looking at what kids need to know and bringing our own creativity to the classroom. So, with that, has launched this whole universe of teachers creating content that's available to other teachers to use in their classrooms. Because there's no way as one person we can make all that alone. But united, teachers can create a world of amazing curriculum and lesson plans. So it's kind of taking that piece of the environment, which is not really part of that world yet, and building that out a little bit more. Um, That's where it's starting, just to get that content out there. But I would really ultimately like to see, uh, you know, that volunteer force of um, like expert people, you know, our celebrated expert that could go into the classroom for a day And talk to kids and maybe take a special lesson or something that would really help them learn, take some of that pressure off the teacher, let the teacher become one of the facilitators and learners in the group and have people go in and and kind of do those kinds of activities with kids. That's like the big dream, the big idea. (laughs)
0: A lot of things to talk about, but we're out of time today. Um, Stacy, I know your your video can be found at on YouTube at Climate GKC, the One Thing for Kids video, so people can go there to learn more. Um, I want to thank all of you for joining us today. And where can we send our listeners to learn more about your work, your school, Beth?
1: Our website is www.kcrestorationschool.org, and we're on Instagram and Facebook.
0: Brianna, where would you like to send people to learn more about what you're doing?
2: Um, you can go to kcia.us. That is our website for Kansas City International Academy. And we also have a Instagram, too, and a Facebook page.
3: Katie? So uh, the working the work that I've been doing has been with the Food Too Good to Waste project. And that's at www.foodtogoodtowaste.com.
0: Thank you. And Stacey, where would you like to send people?
4: Um, You can reach me at um, it's www.onethingmovement.org.
0: Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.